Hello, hello, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. This is the beginning of a new series on the English Revolution, or really we could say radicalism in the English Revolution. And my guest today is Ariel Hesseon, if I said that right? Ariel, yeah. Uh, Ariel, and um, what we're going to talk about today is a general overview of what the English Revolution was, whether indeed it was a revolution, um, and some of the uh, the radicalism and whatever that might mean in this revolution. And then the rest of the series is going to be all of these interesting radicals, some of whom have been described retroactively as anarchists, some of whom were described, if not anarchists, at least as bringing anarchy, even in the 17th century. Um, but that will be in the months to come. Today, big picture and uh, Ariel, where do you where do you think we should start? Okay, well, firstly, Graham, thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to talk about one of the things that I love to talk about. So uh, I'm so glad to be able to have that opportunity. Where should we start? I think we have to start with what is a revolution, and what did people in the 17th century in England think a revolution was? And did what they think about as being a revolution, is that in any way equivalent to how we think about revolution today? And then we can begin to answer the question of was there an English revolution, which is a little bit contentious. Now, before I even do that, let me take you back a few steps to how historians have actually described the period. And by the period, I mean the 1640s and the 1650s in England. We all know there was a civil war. We all know it broke out in August 1642 and that it ended in 1646. We know there's another round of fighting in 1648, that the king is executed in January 1649, followed by the abolition of the House of Lords. The Archbishop of Canterbury is executed. Government of the church by bishops is abolished. We know that Cromwell becomes Lord Protector of England in December 1653, and he dies as Lord Protector of England in 1658. We know that his son succeeds him and is kicked out, and that the monarchy comes back in May 1660. But what we don't know is what to call it. Mm. So the very first historians called it a Grand Rebellion, which is a form of delegitimization, a way of trying to say essentially... This was not a revolution. It was a rebellion against the natural order of things, against a divinely appointed crown and monarchy. Other ways that we could think about it include, was it, for example, purely an English rebellion? What about events in Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. Well, we know that Scotland has a prayer book rebellion in 1637, which will lead to the Covenanters. Ireland has a rebellion in 1641. Maybe we need to be thinking about a British series of civil wars. There's other ways of thinking about it. Even if we think about it in terms of revolution, what does revolution actually mean? Well, for 17th century people, the revolution is a term from astrology. 
It's something that completes an orbit of completing 360 degrees. So yes, they had a revolution, and they were quite clear they had a revolution. The world was turned upside down because they'd completed 180 degrees of their revolution. And when the restoration of the monarchy happened, they completed the revolution and went back to where they started. So that's their understanding of the revolution. But it's not freighted with our modern ideas of a revolution being some form of transformation of modes of government and society. That, that's a later 18th and 19th century idea of revolution that's re that's transposed back into the early modern period. I mean, their society is a society of binaries and inversions. So they, they will think in terms of revolution. And they have classical sources. Thomas May, the parliamentary historian, will think in terms of revolution and look back upon the revolutions of government, of turbulence in the classical world, and map that onto the picture in England in the 1640s. But it's not our understanding of revolution. But by our understanding of revolution, I think we have all the ingredients of, of a revolution. We have the execution of the reigning monarch after a public trial, unprecedented in English history. English monarchs have been deposed, of course, and they've been murdered. You look at Henry VI, you look at Richard II, you look at Edward II. There have been baronial revolts, of course, but never had an English king been put on trial and executed on the charge of waging treason, of waging war and committing treason against his own people. It's an anticipation of the French Revolution in that respect. So there is a sense then which is revolution, but there's another approach, which is, is it a revolution? Because a revolution then gives a sense that we can somehow take the whole period, whether we start in 1637 in Scotland, in 1641 in Ireland, or in 1642 in England, it gives a unity to the whole period. That the revolution is some form of perpetual bringing in of the Reformation, as they saw it. But what about if we break it into discrete chunks? If we break the period into lots of separate little pieces, then it loses that unity, it loses that sense of the bigger narrative arc, and it just becomes a series of, to quote, to quote a famous play, like one damn thing after another with no cohesion and no coherence where it just becomes a Scottish rebellion, an Irish rebellion, an English civil war, the rise of the new model army, a second civil war, a regicide, an interregnum, a commonwealth, a protectorate, the recall of the rump, and a restoration. And then there's the question of, do historians bring their own ideological baggage when they start the labelling? So in the modern sense of the term revolution, it's actually a French historian, Francois Guizot, who's also a politician, who first talks about an English revolution in French, who, who brings us the modern ideas. But he, of course, is writing around the time of 1848, looking back at the French Revolution and deliberately linking affairs in England to France. So are we doing the past a disservice, or are we actually saying... We have to think about the revolution in terms of a bigger chronological picture. Okay, I now there's I, I, there's something I just have to say. I mean, I've been thinking about this the entire time, 
as soon as you started talking, when you gave the very broad strokes of of what happened, which is there's a revolt, the king is put on trial, the king is executed, there's an we can call him a lord protector, but there's an there's an emperor who is not the king, but has, you know, the 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 place of the king that um dynasty sort of that this guy tries to start fails and then a relative of the king comes back although the monarchy is no longer exactly the same as it was this is the french revolution beat by beat is it not i mean i, I see why Guizot said this if we if we yeah. swap cromwell for napoleon cool. louis for charles ta-da we're done Yes, you, you you can see huge parallels. Of course, of course you can. And I, I mean, I think that's a very fair point. And we can push it further. But the the major proponents of the idea of an English Revolution amongst historians in the twentieth century are Marxist historians. Christopher Hill is the most famous, but there are others. And so for Hill, we don't just have a French Revolution that we connect these events to. We have a Russian Revolution as well that we can connect these events to. And then, to anticipate one of our later discussion points, then the English Revolution becomes a marker in the formation of the modern world. Modernity, by some historians, is often seen as being ushered in by the French Revolution, with the Russian Revolution being the start of the 20th century. And then the English Revolution takes its place. And you, know, you can even say that the American Revolution is important, but in a sense, it's an anticipation of the French Revolution. Although I would argue differently. I would say that the American Revolution is also, to an extent, the legacy of an English Revolution. Two revolu in fact, two revolutions, but it's not to be too controversial. It's the legacy of both the, the revolution we're talking about, but also the glorious revolution of 1688-89 because it's many of the same ideas and much of the same rhetoric, but transplanted into a different context. Yeah, this is where I should mention, for the listeners who don't know, that at one point during the the, the thing, the, the complicated parliamentary bits, the guy who ends up running the English Revolution, Oliver Cromwell, considers moving to New England and, you know, and, jo and joining those those people in in Boston uh, whose you know grandchildren uh, start kicked off the American Revolution and that's a bit of continuity there you can easily imagine if Cromwell you know goes to New England that instead of the names being whoever John Adams or Paul Revere they're, they're being a Cromwell in that mix and it comes from the same, uh, I almost said puritanical, but that that's not what, when I say puritanical, I don't mean lowercase p puritanical, but the Puritan-based culture, um, which I guess we're, we're gonna, certainly going to talk about that. We'll be talking about religion. I think every single one of the radical groups that we've discussed doing a future episode on is a religiously radical group because they all, the English Revolution in some ways is about religion in a way that it's in a way, the French Revolution is 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 not. All the revolutionaries are religiously motivated one way or another. Now, now I've tossed us in there. Sorry. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right, Graham. Although when we come to talk about it, I'll also add that there was a trend amongst historians to try and secularize them. 
to make them more uh, palatable to a modern audience and to make them more intelligible to a modern audience. And there are ideas that they have that have a very important secular consequence, but it was because of the religious motivations that you've outlined that led to that. So, I mean, on the point of the connection between England and America, there's, um, you're absolutely right, it's the culture, it's the culture of Puritanism. It's that culture of, of separateness, of that culture of being elect, of being chosen, the biblical language. And also it has to be said that the experience of the English Revolution feeds into the experience of the Glorious Revolution and much of the language of rights, of law, Magna Carta, of Locke's response gets transplanted and becomes the language of the American Revolution. And it wouldn't, I'm not saying there wouldn't have been an American Revolution had there not been an English Revolution, but the form it takes and the way it's expressed, I think it has a great deal of similarity. They wouldn't have had the same verbal and legal tools if it wasn't for what had preceded them. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, the, I, I did want to briefly go back uh, something else that I was thinking. I mean, this this question of revolution, and I haven't studied the term well enough, but it is a hugely important term because it does seem that one of the things that does happen in a revolution is you do have to have a, 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 a completed circle. The world has to be turned upside down and then be put back to rights. But then what makes it an actual revolution in our modern sense is it can't be put back the exact same way. If it's meet the new boss same as the old boss, then it, you know, then it wasn't a, uh, it was it wasn't a revolution. It was just a rebellion. And there's obviously two ways that this plays out from the English revolution. In one sense, it's like, oh, well, if, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I don't remember the details. You'll have to give us the details very briefly of which king is which. Is it Charles the Second um, who is restored to the throne? Is that right? Yes. So, so Charles the Second. Yes, Charles the Second is restored to the throne, as you as you rightly say, in May 1660, and he is the eldest son of the executed king Charles the First. One sense in this, this this is not a rebellion. Yeah, sorry, this is not a revolution. This is a mere rebellion. It's if we end up with Charles's son on the throne, then then it's been put back together in the exact same way. The other more radical way that you that I'm willing to dispute that it's a revolution, and I'm willing to dispute this for the French Revolution as well, is does it matter whether we call that guy Emperor Augustus, your royal highness, Lord Protector, if when the smoke clears... There's a sovereign head of state who commands the military and the clergy. Can you even call that a revolution, even if he's not, you know, technically one of those in, in that royal family? So in, in both senses, I feel like the question of whether this was a really a revolution is, is open. Sure. So, I mean, there's some really interesting points. Let, let's, let's break it up. Two things. Firstly... Let's look at Oliver Cromwell. He is, as my former supervisor points out, the only commoner in English history to become head of state. And he succeeded by, however ineffectually, he succeeded by his son. So there is, 
Now, whether you've replaced the House of Stuart, which is the old monarchy, with the House of Cromwell <laughs> is an interesting question because, because that's something we can also get to, which has been a major debate, is was this a revolution betrayed? Yeah. But what I, think, what I think you see with Cromwell is a move to a formal government that's not unlike other con certain contemporary places in Europe, in Amsterdam and in Venice in particular, a form of oligarchic rule where you've, used, you've, you've alluded to, in a sense, of your notion of an emperor, not so much a first amongst equals, but somebody slightly above with a conciliar... Cromwell makes the decisions, but he has a council, he has advisors, and you've replaced rule by a single person with rule by an oligarchy with a titular head. So it's a slightly different shape. What it is not is, is pure democracy. What it is not is... Is what we would not think of as the result of a modern revolution where power is wrested from an elite who are suppressing the masses who then seize power. And nobody's ever seen it as that. I mean, for the Marxists, this was a middle class revolution where the old aristocracy is replaced by the middle, and then eventually you will see a working class develop and then seize power, hopefully in their teleological ideas. Now, the second point is that even the England that Charles II inherits in 1660, going back to your idea of if you smash it all up into pieces, can you then recreate what you've smashed? Yes and no. The England that he inherits in 1660 looks a little bit like the England of the 1630s, but it's in no way the same, because one of the things is They've just gone and had what we call a revolution, and they have the fear of another revolution constantly throughout the reign. They have the fear that if we make the wrong moves over the succession, if we make the wrong moves in how we handle our religious dissenters, we could have another rebellion. And that fear is always constantly in the background. And so that's different. But what happens is, and this is a very important point, France develops into what historians call absolutism, essentially unchallenged rule of one person, the monarch, Louis XIV, Versailles, the most dominant European power in the second half of the 17th century. England is important, but Charles II doesn't have that level of complete authority and control because he knows if he miscalculates, he could end up like his father. And in fact, when he's succeeded by his brother, his brother miscalculates and he's deposed by a Dutch invader. So it is the same, but it's also different. And that is, uh, it seems to me that that's clearly a revolutionary thing, that before, before the English Revolution, you cannot imagine the glorious revolution. So the system, it, it swings back around and you have the House of Cromwell, but the House of Cromwell is not the House of Stuart, and then you have the House of Stuart, but the the old House of Stuart and the new House of Stuart are are simply not the same. I mean that that suggests to me that it's pretty revolutionary. I want to keep going on these lines, Ariel, but I think we should stop and you should just briefly explain the war and who were on the the, the two sides of the war, and also you know any American listening to this 
they learned in high school what a Puritan was and also who the Roundheads and Cavaliers were, but it's it's been a little while. So if we can do the war and where Puritanism fits into this, we're going to need Puritanism really badly to understand all of these other uh, groups we're looking at. So, so Graham, just to be clear, do you want me to just talk about what happened during the war rather than why why the war happened? Well, um, to me, why, to me, (laughs) to me, why the war happened is, um, is, is more important than what happened during the war. But insofar as, in what sense was what happened during the war, or in what sense was, we can edit this out, out, let me try this. So why the war happened, in what sense can we say why the war happened was radicalism or puritanism and then i think we've sort of spoiled this already but it's important to note that the radicals or the puritans we can say because obviously all all of the radicals we are going to look at in this series starting with the levelers so-called they didn't want to be called the levelers going to the levelers who did want to be called the levelers also known as the diggers and on the line they thought that Cromwell and the New Model Army or the leadership of the New Model Army was not radical enough. But we do need to establish that the the radicals did win. I think, guess we've established that. They've cut the head off of the king. And now we need to establish, I guess, why they were rebelling and why their rebellion was a radical project before we can understand why these all these other radicals were thought, thought the project wasn't radical enough. Okay, perfect. So I think what we need to do then is begin at the beginning, in a sense. Explain to everybody who's listening, why was there a war? Now, as with all things, some historians would traditionally say everything has a cause, and you have long-term causes, medium-term causes, and short-term causes. So we could use that traditional approach and say, well, the long-term causes are the structural instability of the English crown, the fact that it never has enough money to be able to do all the things that the monarch needs to be able to do, which is mainly to wage war. If you move into the medium-term causes, then you begin to ask questions such as, is there major causes of social discontent? Are there major economic issues? Are there major cultural factors? But one of the achievements of what is called the revisionist school is to say we need to get away from long-term and medium-term causes and actually think that there are only immediate causes. In other words, England in the 1620s and the 1630s was not on a highway to civil war. It was doing just fine. And then something went drastically wrong. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's the idea. And then they push it further and say, you've mentioned the roundheads and the cavaliers, the, parli- the parliamentarians and the royalists, and roundheads and cavaliers are contemporary nicknames. And the classic idea when we think of a civil war, we think of a war of brother against brother, of sister against sister, war of all against all, to sort of borrow from Hobbes. But the question is, is was everybody actually involved? The revisionists would say... You're forgetting all the people in the middle, all the people who are neutral, all the people who don't really want to take a side, who are pushed into taking a side. Is this really their 
you think about is it their war is this just the elites fighting it out amongst themselves for power and control how many people are actually motivated to take part so when we look at it in those terms we have a much more complex picture and then we have we mentioned scotland we mentioned ireland already so we have we have a different set of pictures in each of what are the three kingdoms of the British Isles, with Wales being a principality subsumed into it. So if we look at the English picture, what we can say is the following. The king is Charles I, who succeeds to the throne in 1625, and he succeeds his father, James I. Now, his father is Scottish. He comes to the throne in 1603, and he succeeds Queen Elizabeth, the famous Queen Bess, who happens to have had his mother executed. Mary Queen of Scots. But he brings with him the crown of Scotland as well as the crown of England. And he manages to die in his bed, which is better than his son and better than one of his grandsons as king. And according to this line of thought, England is doing fine. It's, it's not as important as some of the major European monarchies. It's not as important as France. It's not as important as Habsburg Spain. It's not as important as the Habsburg of um, what today would be Austria and the, in the Holy Roman Empire, Empire. But it's doing okay. But the problem is Charles I. And Charles I has a problem because Charles I develops a religious policy that manages to alienate people on one reading. Everybody agrees that Charles I, as king, can get people to support him. But you have to have a special talent to alienate them and fight against him. And he has that talent in abundance. How does he do it? By having a lot of policies that they don't like. <laughs> so he manages to... The first thing is, is that he manages to alienate the Puritans who are Calvinists, who believe in predestination. They believe that no matter what you do in life, everything's been predetermined by God from before you were born, and some will go to heaven, and some will go to hell. There's nothing you can do about it. He alienates them because he adopts a religious policy that's influenced by his archbishop, William Lord, which owes something to a Dutch theologian called Jacobus Arminus. And essentially what that religious policy is, is free will. That what you do in this life determines whether or not you go to heaven rather than God deciding before you're born. Secondly, he decides that actually he quite likes the, the fact that he likes beautiful things. I'm reminded of um, Oscar Wilde's Dorian Grain. In a sense, there is a connection. Charles likes beautiful things. He likes the beauty of holiness. He likes being able to go into the London shopping streets, and he has plans for this, so that all the shops should be in one particular, goldsmiths should be there, and grocers should be here, and everything looks ordered. And he puts that into a religious context. When you go into a church, it should be beautiful. It should have nice stained glass, nice paintings, incense to get rid of all the smells, your altar rail, put a nice little wooden rails around it, prevent dogs, and I've actually read accounts of this, dogs running in and eating the communion bread and then leaving it in the pond. Sounds great. Except to the Puritans, this looks like Catholicism. It looks like he's being a Catholic. He's not, but as a propaganda point, it's a huge victory for them. They can say the king is a secret Catholic. Or he's pushing us towards Catholicism. 
And it's not helped by the fact that he's married a French princess who is a Catholic. So he has a Catholic wife. And now there's a rhetoric that goes back to Martin Luther and, in fact, to the Hussites of the 15th century in what is now the Czech Republic that identifies in the Book of Revelation as the Pope being the Antichrist. So the, the Catholics who are loyal to the Pope are the foot soldiers of Antichrist in the coming battle of the Apocalypse. So being identified as a secret Catholic king of England or pushing England towards Catholicism is not going down well with the Puritans. On the contrary, it alienates them, it hardens them, and some historians think that they are an underground during the 1630s. You can't really see them. They have lots of visible networks. And this is a really important point. One of the things that we have to explain is how is an opposition able to coalesce so quickly against Charles in 1641, 1642? How are they able to unite? And the answer is, is that a lot of them know each other already in the 1630s through family networks, through their various professions, through their membership of these Puritan congregations. And so when that conflict eventually comes, it's not just a mass of people who don't know each other suddenly being flung together. There's a pre-existing body of opposition. And Charles managed to make things even worse for himself. I mentioned earlier that kings need money, and they need money most of all to fight. England is exceptional in this. Throughout nearly the entirety of Europe, if you're a noble, you're exempt from taxation. Think of it today as your non-dom status, that you can have your offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands or the Channel Islands for English listeners. In, in Europe, all you needed was to, just a, a noble title. But in England, they pay their tax. And Charles can only get people to pay tax if his parliament votes for it. And so what Parliament had done throughout the beginning of the 17th century was be in conflict with the Crown and say, we'll give you your taxes for whatever you need, for your royal expenses, for your household income, for your wars, but in return you have to give us these various privileges and rights and concessions that we want. It's a quid pro quo. So it becomes an act of negotiation. But Charles isn't very good at negotiating. And every time the Parliament wants lots of things out of him, he can't work with them, and he keeps shutting them down, and eventually he rules without Parliament from 1629 until 1640. Now, that's fine in peacetime. It means he can't fulfill his function as in war, which means he can't gain prestige and status, which means he can't get support. And it also means that if he's ever invaded, he's in big trouble. But he's okay. It's peaceful, more or less, in England in the 1630s. But he still needs revenue to fund all his art projects, everything else. So he gets his antiquarians to find precedents for obscure forms of taxation that haven't been used in a couple of hundred years. And one of them they come up with is something called ship money, which is that every parish on the coast has to contribute money to build ships to protect the coast, whether it be against foreign invasion or pirates from what is today um, Morocco and Algeria who would actually steal people and enslave them on the coast of Cornwall and Devon and parts of Ireland. This is hugely unpopular and eventually leads to lots of rioting. 
And then when he tries to implement this beauty of holiness, his prayer book in Scotland, the Scots rebel. They raise an army and they invade England. And then he needs to fight them. To fight them, he needs to call Parliament. Parliament has not been sitting for 11 years and they come back and they say, okay, we'll give you the money, but meet condition A, B, C, D, E. And Charles goes, I can't do that. And the Scots are going, okay, give us lots of money or we'll carry on invading your country. Give us some money to go away. So he's stuck. So he calls back the Parliament. And this time, Parliament says, now we want control of the militia, essentially a proxy army. And he completely loses control of the situation. He's got dissent in London. He's got an invasion from the Scots. He tries to arrest the leadership of the opposition, which is an even bigger mistake, because it then causes outrage, because he's operating against the law. They manage to run away. The opposition mobilizes. Censorship of print media breaks down. And then there's a whole propaganda war which is fought, which is used to mobilize opinion both for and against the king. And eventually the war breaks out. At which point it takes a direction that nobody expects, because you would think that he would win. How, how many rebellions succeed both today and in the early modern period? The state has most of the resources. Charles has all the aristocrats who have the best diet. They have the training on the horses. They have some military experience. Why shouldn't he win? Because he makes a terrible mistake. He flees London and sets his capital up at Oxford, leaving the most economically developed and important part of the kingdom in the hands of the opposition. Yeah, it's okay. So I think we're ready to get to the opposition. And I want to try one sort of, I guess this is a medium term Thing. And this is something that is probably too uh, too obvious to you to even mention, um, which is to say that this this guy um, Charles, whose uh, father took over from Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth's father was that guy Henry. You've heard of Henry the Eighth, and Henry the Eighth is the one who kind of, sort of, it's complicated, made England a protestant country but not super duper protestant and so when you're talking about i can't believe i just said not super duper protestant but it's it's true and i should say at this point i'm i'm an american but i was raised calvinist so this stuff is 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 deeply important to my family um so england has for uh what what is it now not quite a century but been sort of um <laughs> theologically it's a century, more or less, by the time of the Civil yeah, War. Okay, yeah, okay, so right by the time of the Civil War, it is a century, you're right. So for a century, it's been sort of seesawing between um, not Protestant, occasionally it has Catholic monarchs or secret Catholic monarchs, versus kind of Protestant, which is kind of, I mean, I would say at, from, from my extreme Calvinist upbringing, I would say this is where England ends up. The Episcopal and Anglican Church ends up kind of Protestant. And then also, you know, some of the most extreme Protestants in the history of the world, aka the Puritans, are inculcated here. And you've got these sort of three groups, the Catholics, the Church of England, sort of Protestant, but boy, does it look Catholic from an extreme Puritan position. 
and the Presbyterians and various forms of Puritans who really want to finish the job that Henry started or half started. And that has got to have been bubbling under the surface for a hundred years and is a huge part of why there is an army ready. How, how does that sound? Yes, that sounds good. So Henry, we'll, we'll go back and um, we'll do some earlier causes. So the, the Reformation itself is usually dated to 1517 and a place in what is now Germany called Wittenberg and usually attributed to an Augustinian monk called Martin Luther who decides to radically break from Rome on a number of issues. He reduces the seven sacraments to a couple, to communion, the Lord's Supper, and to baptism. He marries, which is very unusual, a radical break from tradition. He introduces an apocalyptic element. He takes several of his ideas from earlier radical groups, um, the Hussites in particular are mentioned in Bohemia, the Czech Republic, the Valdensians to an extent. But one of the things that's forgotten is, is that he's hardly the first radical religious reformer against the papacy. And had he not been sheltered by Frederick the Wise of Saxony, had he been executed as a heretic in the manner of many of his contemporaries, He'd only been known to a few historians as an obscure figure, and we wouldn't be talking about him or a Reformation. It's actually very unusual for this to, to catch fire, as it were. And the question is then is, was Henry VIII, what was his interest in this Reformation? And there's some suggestion that he's pushed into it by his second wife. Henry is obsessed most of all by being succeeded, by ensuring that the dynasty doesn't die with him. He's a Tudor. His father, Henry VII, has claimed the throne in battle at Bosworth Field in 1485, which is also the last time a reigning monarch of England dies on the battlefield when Richard III is defeated. To secure his dynasty, Henry, as is famously known, has six wives, of whom he executes two. And Elizabeth is the daughter of the first executed wife, Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth is a Protestant. Allegedly. No, no, Elizabeth <laughs> is a Protestant. No, sure. I, be I, be I believe Elizabeth sure. is a Protestant, but I'm also aware that conspiracy swirled around her. I'm sorry, I, should have, I shouldn't have said that. Carry on. That's fine. That's fine. And um, um, it's likely that she was trained in that faith by her mother, Anne Boleyn, who was receptive to the original Lutheran. Uh, Reformation, in a way that her half-sister Mary is a Catholic who was influenced by her mother, Catherine of Aragon. So, Henry, Henry's Reformation is only a halfway Reformation. There's a, a lot of it is really a power grab of, of state, of, of church assets from the Pope, the dissolution of the monasteries. And he dies a Catholic. So if anybody's the half-Protestant, it's Henry. He, he dies a Catholic. He pushes a reformation, but much of it is really about accruing more power and more resources to himself. He never wholeheartedly embraces and furthers the reformation. 
which is what happens during the reign of his son, Edward VI. Not by Edward VI himself, because he's an ineffectual puppet who dies young, but by the major key religious figures around him. And then it reverts into Catholicism, and then Elizabeth pushes through a moderate form of Protestantism, the Church of England, the, the precursor to Anglicanism. But it has hotter, you've alluded to this already, Graham, it has hotter elements within it, the, the, the Presbyterian faction that take their cue from Calvin's Geneva, who tie the vanguard, the Calvinist vanguard, who try and take control of that church eventually. And particularly in the reign of James I, the Scottish successor to Elizabeth, there's that process of negotiation of trying to prevent the church from falling apart into extreme, an extreme faction and a more moderate faction. It's a very difficult balancing act, but James, James succeeds, and one of the ways he succeeds is he makes concessions, something that his, his son is almost incapable of doing. And that's actually a sign of strong leadership, and the famous translation of the Bible into English in 1611 is in some ways a concession to these people, but it's also a way of trying to control them. Because if you're controlling the translation, you're controlling the language of the Bible for people who can't read it in the original Hebrew and who can't read it in the original Greek, who can't even read it in the common translation, the Vulgate of the Latin. So he's moving away from the English translation by the radical reformers of Geneva, but he's appeasing, let's call them the Puritans, by giving them a new translation, but he's trying to sort of control that process. And it's something that his son's not capable of doing. So you can see that longer trajectory. So in a sense, and it's a very important point that you raise, because it's something that I and a couple of other historians are beginning to think, is I've already talked about whether it's a revolution or a civil war or a rebellion. So my supervisor thought that these, are, these wars are England's last wars of religion. These should be framed more like the 16th century French wars of religion, of conflict between Huguenots, French Protestants, and Catholics. But there's also another way of framing this, that this is England's radical reformation. This is a more extreme version of the reformation that we see playing out in what is now Germany and parts of Central Europe, like such as Poland and such as Hungary. And this is the English version of it, but 100 years late. In the same way that the American Revolution is a form of an English revolution transplanted so, so that legacy is, is really important. And for some contemporaries, they see themselves as furthering the Reformation. For them, this isn't revolution, this is Reformation. And by Reformation, they mean purifying the church. They mean taking the church back to the time of Christ, away from all that Catholic, Popish intermeddling, to the purest unadulterated form, what today we now call primitive Christianity. Okay, fantastic. And these are the people, or a group of them, because we're going to have all the subsets, who, who win. Crom, they, they have this thing called the New Model Army, and Cromwell is in no way, I need to briefly explain this for people who don't know, it's not like the revolution starts and Cromwell stands up and says, here I am, I'm in charge of the roundheads, it's complicated, the war goes on for a long time, there's two separate wars, etc., etc., but when finally the smoke clears, a relatively obscure, at the beginning, cavalry commander is now in charge of this thing called uh, the New Model Army, and they are the winners, and they are the Puritans, and since we're 
we got to we got to be on the back end or the final quarter of our talk and we've got to set up the levelers uh can you you know give us what we need to know about Cromwell and the new model army so that we understand how he ends up you know uh on the other side of our of our next group of of radicals even though they of course will be far far not radical enough when we get to the uh when we get to just a few more groups of radicals down the line okay sure so Cromwell himself as you rightly say, Graham, is relatively obscure, but not so obscure as we might think. So firstly, he comes from a minor gentry family. The gentry is is the beginning of the elite, but it's the bottom part of the elite rather than somebody who sits in the House of Lords. He goes to university, and England at this point has two universities, Oxford and Cambridge. And he goes to Cambridge University, to Sydney Sussex College. He's from East Anglia, um, particularly the Huntingdonshire area. In fact, um, his head is buried in Sydney Sussex College, but we'll, we'll talk about the Cromwell head story is a completely separate story. He is also a member of Parliament. So as well as being a minor farmer, and he's also a member of Parliament and university educated. So he's not so obscure and low down the social scale as to not have all these privileges. And he wins a series of victories as a cavalry officer, as you rightly say. But there's a, there's a key point that really needs to be emphasised here, which is he believes that his victories have been have come directly from God, that they are providential. And not only him, but his soldiers. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that it was expected that the Royalists would win. Why wouldn't they? And the, the first years of the war is a sort of back and forth when no side really gets the upper hand. And the New Model Army is an, is an attempt to remove the command by Parliament of its armies away from the aristocratic figureheads and, to use modern language, in a sense, professionalise it. Put it in the hands of people who know what they're doing. And Cromwell's troop is famously called the Ironsides and he famously, famously has a speech in which he wants... There's a brilliant YouTube video by my former teacher that I can recommend your listeners to about it. But he wants people who are plain fear God rather than flamboyant, erratic, and ill-disciplined. And this cavalry troop becomes a key, asp a key part of the army that wins crucial victories. At Master Moore in the summer of 1644, not too far from the north of England and York, and then crucially at Naseby in Northamptonshire in 1645. And these victories not only give them victory in the war, they don't just win the battle, they win the war, but it reinforces the belief that they have won because God is on their side. And it gives them the leverage to be able to negotiate with the king from a position of strength. The king is not to be trusted. The, king's, the king tries to play off the sides against each other because, of course, one side says, OK, he's still the king. How much power do we give him? Maybe the king will... will favor us if we do a deal with him 
there are more extreme elements in the army. So, so Cromwell has to be seen as a more extreme figure than many people in the army. But there are people even more extreme than him to whom he's a moderate and a betrayer, eventually, but not at this point. Another point that we, I want to make is, you've mentioned the Presbyterians earlier, so this won't quite get into all our groups and movements and sects, but we need to start thinking about a couple of technical terms, I'm afraid. So we have the Church of England. The Church of England is a hierarchical organisation. It has an archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, and it has bishops, and the bishops have their own palaces and their own jurisdictions. And then below them, you have the various parish priests. You have a Calvinist model of church government, which is taken from Calvin's Geneva, which is the Presbyterian idea, where people who are not ordained as the clergy, but are lay people, elders, can have a very prominent role. And they, they're essentially a morality police. If you've been drunk, if you've been having sexual relationships outside of marriage, if you've swear, swearing, cursing, blaspheming, these are all things that prevent you from accessing the communion, which is very important in your religious belief. So you have the Presbyterian, but Cromwell is essentially independent. Now, independence has a political meaning, but it also has a religious meaning. And what this means is no structured hierarchy whatsoever. Neither the Presbyterian nor the Episcopalian. Can I use that word? It's not too technical. It's not. Uh, Episcopalian means having means having bishops, but it's also what we call the Anglican Church over 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 here. So people know the word Episcopalian. Okay, perfect. So Cromwell wants neither. He wants essentially a voluntary gathering of individuals coming together in community independently. And that breaks the parish church structure. Instead of having the congregation as being where you are physically living, it means that if you're living in London, you can live in different parishes, but congregate voluntarily and have your priest as an independent. Cromwell's independent. But it also, because of that experience, as we'll see, means that he pushes religious toleration. And he's actually allied with some of the leadership initially of what becomes the levellers, people like John Lilburn, the famous leveller leader who is argumentative in the extreme, shall we say. All right. I think this will be a good place to set up the levellers, and then we can take a few minutes to talk about this final question, which is sort of, is this, you know, the first modern re revolution. So what I'm, I'll, I'll throw this out there and you can just add to it or shut it down. So we have the new model army, which is a, which is a professional army. So, and so it's outside of the traditional hierarchy and it's non-aristocratic. And we can think of the levelers as a subset of the new model army that not only want it to be a professional army, but in some ways, what we might call a democratic army or an, an independent or Presbyterian army in, in this sense, that these new ways of organizing society religiously can and could and should be used to organize society politically and militarily 
and that's who the levelers are very roughly and tell me where 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 that sounds right and where it's wrong and Pretty good. I, I would say that the, the only thing I, I want to emphasize, and this is part of the older literature, is that, that some historians would talk about civilian levelers as much as military levelers. There is both a civilian wing as well as a military wing. And that one of the things about the, the army constantly winning, and we see this in the Russian Revolution, we see this in the French Revolution, is it radicalizes the soldiery. And the soldiery's what more and more demands and they begin to elect their own leadership beginning to sound familiar who, who are given the name of agitators and they they organize and they debate reward and the key the key point is if they're not granted some of their demands then they're mercenaries they're people who fought just for money with no ideology they want they want they don't want peace, bread, land, but they do want the vote. They do want electoral reform. They want religious toleration. They want social justice. They want a lot of things. So you can begin to see how, how that comes out. And it comes out, if not in a vacuum, when the king is defeated in 46, it's the classic case of, let's call it civil war revolution. You have a lot of people this, on a spectrum who have disparate goals who unite against the common enemy. They defeat the common enemy. And now they have no forces that keep them together because that enemy is defeated. And they split asunder, arguing about what form the kingdom needs to take now that they've won. And so the unity of the Presbyterians in the independents and the radical sects and groups that have coalesced against Charles begins to sunder completely the minute that they defeat him. And you see that in the prelude to the levelers in 1646, with this attack by a man called Thomas Edwards in Gangrena, where he attacks the various radical religious groups, as we would now call them, and John Lilburn, the future leveler leader, because he's a Presbyterian and he's trying to delegitimate these people and get the Presbyterians on the streets to win the revolution for their cause rather than the more radical, independent, pre-leveler type revolution. So you, you can see it begin to fall apart at that very moment. All right, that's perfect. And I just have to say, listeners, you will not believe the the radicalism of some of the ideas that that pop up with these with these smaller sects. The the levelers who will be in the next episode, they they were really a big deal. They really mattered. We studied them because they were politically important. Someone like Gerard Win Stanley, who I'll be talking with Ariel with uh, in a couple of months. It's not that he's so important politically, but his ideas have just resounded across the centuries. So be looking forward. You, you will not believe, if you have not studied this, how radical the radicals got in the English Revolution. But now, Ariel, we have to answer this last question because this is very important to me in terms of why this series is even happening. And I know I mentioned this to you off the air when when Hobsbawm, who is one of these Marxist historians who who does this rethinking of the world, when when he starts his history of the modern world, he doesn't start with this one. 
He starts with the 18th century revolutions, the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. When Kropotkin starts the history of anarchism, he also starts right about where Hobsbawm does. So the question is, can we revise history so that this is the first modern transatlantic political revolution? Or was it, you know, a civil war? People were squabbling about who was going to be king. And we're uh, ahistorically, anachronistically, like Guizot, slapping this label on it. And so now you have to answer this question, I'm afraid. I'm very happy to answer the question. Thank you for a very interesting and lively presentation of, of the possibilities. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think it is partly the first modern European revolution, and it is much bigger than what happens purely on in, in England. And I'll justify that in a number of ways. Firstly, it's well known that from the European perspective, I'm not talking from the Chinese or the Japanese or the India or the Mughal Indian perspective, the world gets bigger in 1492. And it gets bigger through a series of voyages sponsored by the Spanish crown and the Portuguese crown. There is a transatlantic dimension. There's an African dimension. There's contact with Mughal India, with the shogunate in Japan, and with the Ming and then the Qing dynasties in China. And so it's already global in a way that had this happened in the 14th century, it would not have been global from a, just looking at it in terms of Europe. Secondly, it's also European because of the new technologies. Okay, Gutenberg's invention of the printing press had been around for a couple of years, a couple of hundred years, but it allows the spread of information to a greater degree than ever before. One of the things we haven't talked about is that roughly 25% of all titles published in the English language between the invention of printing in 1700 come out in this 20-year period. So in a 225-year period, 25%, it's actually 26%, comes out in this 20-year period. That gives you an idea of how much information there is. Now, that's just not confined just to the British Isles. News of what happens spreads into Spain, Portugal, France, the Italian peninsula, as far away as Russia. So this isn't an isolated incident with, with no repercussions. This is news in the same way that the French Revolution is internationalized. There's a question as to whether rebellions in France, in Bordeaux, the Ormay, are connected to developments in England. Maybe. I'm not going to go into the internationalization in Europe, but transatlantic, most certainly. First of all, there is conflict in the English possessions. There's conflict in Bermuda. There is most certainly awareness of what happens in North America, in New England. We even have a number of key players in New England who go back to England to fight. The Rainsborough brothers, one of the famous speakers at the Putney debates that Rachel will talk about with the Levellers. They have associations with Charleston. We have Henry Vane. 
the Winthrops are in constant communication. So there is definitely a transatlantic dimension. There's an attempt to colonize the Bahamas, partly by the losers in, in Bermuda, influenced and funded by people in England. And then, to break the power of the Antichrist and the papacy, Cromwell funds an expedition to attack Hispaniola to prevent the Spanish silver fleet bringing money from the New World to Spain. They thought they would capture what is now the Dominican Republic in Haiti. They're completely defeated because it's an ill-planned and ill-prepared expedition, but they do capture Jamaica. So there is definitely an international dimension to this so there's just the geographical part of the answer I think helps bring it across and secondly in terms of its legacies we've already talked about its likely influence into even in terms of its fear both on the restoration period and then eventually the glorious revolution and the American revolution but there's also another legacy which we've not explored at all yet it's a contentious term, though it might appear not to be, which is the Enlightenment. There are, according to some historians, different types of Enlightenment, even a radical Enlightenment, supposedly. But many of the ideas of that Enlightenment probably have their origin in the mid-17th century and partly in England. We have a royal society that emerges at the Restoration, but it obviously has its roots in scientific inquiry and radical reform in what today the disciplines we would call alchemy, which leads into chemistry, into magic, which leads into physics, into astrology, which leads into astronomy. We have new ways of thinking, even in reaction to this, with Hobbes's philosophy, that you can almost see a reasonable, rational Christianity begin to develop partly as an antidote to the type of things we've been discussing, the separation of faith and reason. So even if not by intent, then by consequence, it feeds into the creation of the modern world. And nobody would say, I think, that we have a modern, at least Judeo-Christian Western world without an, without an Enlightenment, without a French Revolution, and without an American Revolution. And they couldn't have happened, I would suggest, without the English. I think I think that is a great way of putting it so the if if you think the world changed if the possibility of you know of cutting off the head of the king of rewriting the rules of society of dreaming new ways of putting the world together and oh god the pamphlets of and of pamphleteering and writing this all down and getting the word out if that's what the modern world is if that's what the hope of political revolution is if that's what the radical project is, sure, we can't imagine it without the French Revolution, but it certainly has a a beginning, maybe not the beginning, but a beginning in the English Revolution. Ariel, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Graham. It's been great to talk about something I'd love to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, you will be hearing me discuss the the levelers which is a slur on them, by the way. They weren't actually levelers, levelers at all. They didn't want to level everything. You'll hear all about that with me and Rachel Foxley. And then uh, my personal favorite of this entire milieu, Gerard Winstanley, who was actually a leveler, a true leveler, better known as the digger, with Ariel uh, in the month after that. Um, I'm really looking forward to that conversation, Ariel. 
Me too, Graham. Thank you so much. Well, you thought we were done. I'm sure it sounded like we were done. But when I was speaking to Rachel Foxley, I decided that Ariel and I hadn't quite covered the timeline clearly enough for you to understand what was going on with the levelers, the Putney debates, and the settlement of the king. So I brought Ariel back on briefly for just a couple minutes more context, setting up the levelers. And then I promise, finally, this very long episode is done. Um, something that I think we didn't quite cover clearly is that there, you know, the king was, this is coming out of my conversation with Rachel Foxley talking about the levelers. The king went in rebellion. He left London. There was a war. He lost the war. And then there was the question of what to do with him and what to do with the country or the ver the various kingdoms um, in this time in yeah. between what the settlement was going to be. And the levelers are sort of the, the radical wing um, in the question of what to do with the king now that he has been defeated. And if I'm understanding this correctly from my conversation with Rachel, A, the levelers lose and do not get the more radical settlement that they might have wanted but also b the settlement is is radical enough at least as far as charles is concerned that although he is imprisoned there is a rebellion in his name and it's only after this second round of fighting which he loses again that a settlement that actually might look sort of like what the levelers wanted at least including cutting off the head of the king happens does that is that is that <laughs> at all right yeah, that's that's very, very good for, I mean, a lot of credit grain for an incredibly complex period to summarize something that you haven't specialized in. Although it's more complicated oh, than I... that, in that the level of position, the level of position and what to do with the king is mixed rather than unified. So some don't want to kill him because they fear that the new, whatever replaces him will be even worse. Got it. And that it's better to have a emasculated king and pliable or a puppet rather than something completely unknown. That's one point. The second point is even after the king is defeated the second time, the second civil war from August, well, April to August 48 until his execution in January, there's a lot of politicking by what we might call the more moderate faction of the winners who still want to reach an accommodation with him because he's still alive to get their version of settlement and their version and vision of how the country should be governed religiously, which really annoys all the people who have an alternative version of settlement and an alternative vision of religious government. So they're, they're all busy negotiating and to help matters or make matters worse, he tries to escape ah. from his prison in the Isle of Wight. Doesn't get very far. I just want to say quickly, this takes us back, Ariel, to where we started with the French Revolution, because the yeah. king is indeed defeated. Yeah. There is a settlement. No one knows exactly what the settlement is going to be. It seems like it's not going to be as radical as it might have been. The king tries to escape, and that precipitates the more radical solution and the execution of the king. We can't stop. I can't stop drawing these parallels. 
and you're absolutely right to Graham because I, I mean I think they it's the old adage that people who don't study history trot out which is that history repeats itself <laughs> well it sort of does and it sorts of doesn't but there are definitely similarities and differences change and continuities so it's something to, to bear in mind and that is finally that something to bear in mind all throughout this series is the similarities between the English Revolution and the French Revolution as well as other modern revolutions. I also want you to bear in mind this timeline that the king had been defeated and the question was what are we to do with him and what are we to do with the country and it's in the context of this argument that the biggest moment in the history of the levelers the Putney debates happens. That's what's coming next in this series in my conversation with Rachel Foxley.